Hey, hi, my dear family and friends. Today on this podcast, I'm going to be taking you on a different kind of journey. It's going to be just a way for us to kind of step back before we go into our next episodes. I wanted to talk about something that I found recently that I thought was really kind of cool. And it was a way for me to impart my um, feelings about all the research I did. You know, it kind of sets the stage for you guys so you can realize, oh, you know, how much of my hearing is true? How much of I hear, I'm hearing about my family is uh, just fanciful lore? And, um, you know, is is Mary really doing the research? I mean, what am I listening to? Is real stuff. Um, so here's a great piece that I wanted to read to you. Um, this is actually from... Um, the uh, Ellis Island folks. So if you go to Ellis Island and uh, you take a look at what's going on there, they have a whole like museum and history and they've got um, virtual plaques of, of people who came through Ellis Island and some of the Sobels are there. Um, not put there by any of us because we haven't done any of that, but other people have, which is cool. I mean, but all of our immediate family members, we, we have not um, done anything for in Ellis Island. We're, I'm just kind of talking about our the Sobel cousins and, you know, the second cousins, etc., which kind of compels me to think that maybe, maybe we should put something there at Ellis Island, like a plaque or have a certificate for uh, Samuel Sobel and for Haim Sobel. So, just something to think about. I probably will do that because I think it's only fitting um, to show our support for our immigrants. And additionally, I don't think uh, we should uh, forget about our Irish clan. I think uh, Michael uh, Bowden Sr. came through uh, Ellis Island as well. And I think we can put something there for the Bowden family um, too. So, any something to think about. But there's a document and on the Ellis Island website, and I want to read it to you. I think it's very fitting, and here it goes. It says, don't believe everything you read or hear. Okay, we know in this everyday life, but for some reason, we seem to ignore this counsel when it comes to genealogy. Passed down to us as precious cargo from our parents and our elders, our family lore takes on the veneer of uh, truth. But no matter how sincere the intentions of the messenger, chances are that more than a little distortion has crept in. Just think of the game telephone you played as a kid. You whispered, did the ice cream melt into the ear of your playmate? And she passed it on to the next kid. And it emerged five whispers later as, did the mice scream help? Well, this is what happens to family tales through a combination of misunderstandings, forgetfulness, embellishment, and deliberate twisting, they morph over generations. And there's virtually always a seed of truth embedded, but accepting the entire story as fact will throw you off your research. Blinded by the tale, we get locked into a paradigm that prevents us from finding the reality. One of the most startling examples of this is Annie Moore, the first immigrant to arrive at Ellis Island. Statues of her stand both there and at Cobb Heritage Center in Ireland. But that didn't stop them, Ellis Island, from getting her story wrong. For years, people believed a saga that had her moving to Texas and eventually New Mexico 
before meeting a tragic end. But while working on a documentary, they discovered that this adventurous Annie wasn't the one who arrived at Ellis Island from Ireland. It took some time, but eventually they learned the truth. The real Annie never left New York City, and her real story was much typical of the hard scrabble existence of many immigrants. Annie died in 1924, which is kind of like yesterday in genealogical terms, and yet we all, everyone, fell for the romantic myth. Why? Because an elderly woman announced to her family that her mother, another Annie Moore, was the Annie Moore, and no one ever questioned the claim. That was all it took for a touch of wishful thinking to slip into American history. And don't think just because it's in black and white that it's necessarily accurate. This is particularly true of immigrant ancestors who often didn't know their own birth dates. I said that last night, right, you guys, in my email, when I was sending you the life story of Samuel Sobel. I had to go back and send you an email and say, hey, you know, there's discrepancies here on on this life story, and there's a reason why. I, I can't tell you it's this year or that year, and I have to be very careful If I say it's one year or another, I have to make sure it is that indeed one year or another. Otherwise, I have to give you everything I found, right? So, this is particularly true, again, of our immigrants because because they didn't know their own birth dates. And uh, I think they're kind of saying we should routinely question the names given for an immigrant's parents on his or her death certificate because the informant was probably a child of the immigrant who never even met his old country grandparents. And I've seen that on some of my uh, family members' uh, death certificates, where they have the informant, but the informant doesn't really know. And I can tell they're just either A, trying to make something up, or B, they're just leaving things blank. Confusion can creep in in other ways as well. They state, when my grandfather's birth certificate listed Greece as the birthplace of his mother, the writer of this piece at Ellis Island said, I squandered valuable time seeking my Greek grandmother, only to discover she had immigrated from Poland. (laughs) How could Greece and Poland be muddled? (laughs) She was of the Greek Catholic faith. So... That doesn't, mean need you, that doesn't mean you need to toss aside the family stories or we don't need to discount everything we find, but it does mean I and everybody else, whoever does ancestry in perpetuity, we have to examine every piece of data with a critical eye. And here's how Ellis Island um, historical people want to give us a head start. It's a, a, a short list of commonly held beliefs that they say should make us wary. One, our name has changed at Ellis Island. They state, no, it wasn't. Your ancestor changed it after the fact, probably Americanizing it by lopping off a couple of syllables. Filipiano became Villa or Villa, translating 
Vis became white, dropping accents or extra letters. Smolniak used to begin with S-Z-M. Remember the S-C-O-B-E-L? Picking an Anglo-sounding version, Lewinsky becomes Lewis, and so forth. Ellis Island was staffed with people who spoke dozens of languages and were mostly checking names against lists generated at the port of departure. In spite of what you might have seen in the movies, they didn't substitute Italian village names for surnames or arbitrarily assigned, quote, more American, end quote, names to immigrants. Good to know. Two, we're descended from a Cherokee princess. Well, we all want to think that, right? Remember, I think, I think Joey Bowden would tell me sometimes on an occasion that um, Michael James Bowden was, no, I take that back, that Helen Egan thought that she had some, quote, Indian, end quote, blood in her, the Egans, which, as I have clarified at some point, is actually Iberian, Iberian blood. But anyway, so there we have it. Okay, our own Egan clan was even under the spell of, you know, not the Cherokee princess, but the Blackfoot. Anyway, uh, they say not so much. She said, I'm not sure why, but this, with this tale, generally people always associate it with Cherokee, and it's always a princess. No one ever claims to have Chippewa Cree prince for an ancestor. White settlers sometimes referred to the daughter of a chief or other native women of some note as a princess, but there's no such thing as an Indian princess. What might be true is that you have some native ancestry, but that claim should also be investigated. I want to talk to you about that too, because I sent an email to my family members and I attached Michael Sobel's um, ancestry lineage to it because he's got the paternal haplogroup in it. And there's this little tiny piece at the bottom that says that my brother Michael Sobel, which would be not me, I don't have it, but maybe my brother Brian Sobel has it. Or maybe somebody else in my sibling tree has it, but I don't. But it said like 0.3% or whatever, um, Asian or Native American. I would venture to guess that given the research I've done on the, on the Hungarian origin of the Finnish and the Huns and the Attila the Hun, not a great association, but um, they came from a lot of that tie back goes to Asia. So I would say we have more maybe Asian of that 0.3% is associated with Asian than actually Native American. And then the third thing they talk about is three brothers came to America. One went north, one went, went south, and one went west. You can cut yourself a little more slack on this one because there obviously must be some families where this is true. Though the more typical pattern was for whole families to come as a unit or chain migration, meaning, and this is applicable to the Sobels, more so, and the Grossmans, than it would be for our Irish clan. I didn't see the Irish clan clans doing this as much. But, um, meaning, they said, the father 
or maybe one brother came first, made enough money to send back for another brother or two to join him, who then made enough money to send back for still more family members, and more often than not, the north-southwest aspect is an attempt to link geographically dispersed families of the same surname. Fortunately, with DNA, it's now possible to test such tales, but if this assertion pops up in your family, exercise a little caution. So, again, I'm not suggesting that you ignore all those stories Grandpa told you or all of our family members tell us, but even the ones that have grown grander over the generations, we have to say, well, there was likely a very real person or event that sparked the tale. So they're definitely worth checking out. And consider this a chance, as I am, to sharpen my detective skills. I think of family lore or any suspicious or unsupported information as it pertains to all our clans as a hypothesis. And then I try to prove or disprove it through my research. So on that note, I just wanted to share that with you. It's almost like this grandest caveat, right? I had to read the document to you because you really did have to hear that, you know, I'm not floating this stuff to make a tale sound good. I have to really make sure that it's real because like this, the um, story of Annie Moore, that's horrendous, horrendous. I mean, they put a statue at Ellis Island and in Ireland over her. Two statues, and they had it all wrong. So anyway, I'm responding in this podcast. This is not episode three, not yet. Um, I'm going to kind of hold back a little bit because uh, I had somebody ask me a question um, after listening to the introduction in episode one, and they said, well, what does Chicago mean, actually mean? And like, where did that name come from. And so this is a little bit more of the podcast is going to be talking about that and, and Pioneer Chicago, the silliness of firsts. There are a lot of firsts that go on in in every place um, where we start to um, see a town start and people are coming in and people are opening up businesses and, and those firsts are, can be kind of funny. Although I think with Chicago, some of the stuff is funnier than others. But um, the word Chicago, I I do want to talk about that. Um, Chicago is trending today. And it's kind of a timely time to do a podcast on Chicago. But Chicago was actually, well, it's known as a windy city. It's known for, contemporarily speaking, deep dish pizza. Uh, it's got a pretty, like, cool improv scene uh, forever and always, once again, entertainment. And did you guys know that the name of Kim Kardashian and Conway West's third child is named Chicago? Yeah. So that was interesting. I thought, hmm, okay. But the root of the word Chicago actually comes from Native Americans who originally lived in the area. Historians are debating which specific word it originated from. Um, But, you know, there are a few theories. So one of the theories is that 
And this was kind of put out there by this guy named Richard Ellis. He's a University of New Mexico history professor. He referenced a native chieftain by the name of Chicago, who sadly reportedly drowned in the Chicago River. So that's kind of sad. I don't know how he drowned. But his name was, it was spelled C-H-I-C-A-G-O-U. Now, there are some other theories that point to a derivative of Chicago. Chicago. It, um, it means playful waters. Or there's another one, Chocago, which means destitute. This is all in Algonquin, but I can't imagine Chocago means destitute. Why would we name a city based upon that premise? But mm, we shouldn't go there. <laughs> Let's say it was something else. But really, the most accepted um, historical belief, hypothesis, or origin of the word, is from, is from the dialect of the Algonquin language. And it started as she ka qua she qua qua And it's S-H-I-K-A-A. KWA, Chicago. And it means striped skunk or smelly onion. <laughs> really? Oh, man. Historians think that this is really the most accurate interpretation of how Chicago was named. Um, there's a Miami, Illinois Native American that I guess what they did was the Algonquins, they typically named natural landmarks after plants that grew in an area where they harvested. And it was a good system, and that became kind of a guide, a, a local guide for how um, the Native Americans could find vegetables and plants. And apparently there were many leeks and smelly onions that grew in the streams around Chicago. And so the word shikakwa, um, was really based upon that. I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, because if you really think about it, you know, you could say, you know, we are going to Chicago. And then, of course, the white settler said, oh, we're going to Chicago? Uh, sh- we're going to Chicago? You know, yeah, I'll go to Chicago with you. And probably a Native American's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? But that was really how this thing morphed into Chicago was Chicago. It was a smelly onion. It was a leek. Um, I guess, you know, the Native Americans, uh, the people, <clears throat> the peoples that we kicked out of their land and sent packing to really yucky pieces of real estate, which they accepted, not by choice, but I guess through a kind of a force of, I don't know, bargaining and booze as gifts and attrition. You know, after we killed many of the Native Americans with our diseases, uh, we probably don't realize that over 26 United States have names that originate from Native American language, and literally countless cities and towns do so. So while everyone's Googling the meaning behind Kim and Conway's, Kanye's latest name choice, I mean, it really does have true significance. You know, I, I actually think... Kim and Kanye should name their fourth child after a Native American. I think that I think that would be pretty cool. Like you know, not after a 
Stinky Onion. I think they should name their child after, I don't know, I think they should name it Crowfoot or, or um, somebody like that. That would be kind of cool. Somebody, somebody who was really, really something. Anyway, um, so I just wanted to share that with you because I had a couple of people say, what does that mean? What is Chicago? Where did that come from? Um, and the tribes also, so that you realize, well, you know, what are the Native American tribes that were around? Um, the tribe was uh, the Potawatomi, and it's pronounced Potawatomi. And, and they were really the tribes that were in the area around Chicago. Uh, um, they understood the importance of this geography. They took advantage of the um, portage systems and the waterways uh, for hundreds of years, even before the European settlers arrived. And um, they were so kind. I mean, really, the, um, the Potawatomi believed that the land is Mother Earth and you can't own it. It's like owning air or owning the stars. So whenever the white settler, a new white settler or whatever would come to the area, they would be graciously showing them everything that Mother Earth had to offer without realizing that, you know, their time was limited. But the routes and the trails that the Native Americans had made uh, into the land there around Chicago had become essential to the early American or early European traders and American settlers. And, and I don't just mean little trails. Really, they made trails into the Great Lakes that the, Indian, that the Native Americans followed. They were like, these trails were five or six feet wide. These white settlers coming into this area would not have been able to get to this particular area had it not been uh, created by the Native American first which I find pretty interesting. But uh, the, the uh, Potawatomi uh, Indian, Native American, and the other Algonquin tribes were very tolerant and welcoming to people outside their tribe. They just assumed that outsiders' intentions were peaceful. And, uh, and that's your first problem right there. I mean, really? I mean, why trust us? I mean, what, what were they thinking? I mean, they, it was really too nice to trust us so much. I mean, we clearly, we, we you know, our background was not along those lines. But um, so I think the Native Americans kind of got a short shrift there. Uh, they had been in that area for so long. And uh, I kind of had to step away and, and give way to the white settler. There is a, a historian. Her name is uh, Susan Sleeper hyphen Smith. And she had a great quote, and I wanted to read it to you because it makes you think about things. She said, quote, white people come here and take the lands the Indians were already cultivating, she says. It's much easier to acquire lands that once belonged to somebody else that have already been cleared and cultivated and roads set up, end quote. Well, no duh. I mean, that, well, that's how the white settlers ruled. Why reinvent the wheel when you can steal? Hello? I mean, right? That's what the kind of did. So. Um, and in 1883, most Native Americans were displaced out of the region around uh, Chicago. Uh, 
And they were pressured to sign these really coercive treaties. Um, But, you know, there was trading and agriculture and all of this, but really they didn't realize, you know, maybe they got bargaining chip, 40 crystal beads, they got 40 bottles of bad whiskey, who knows, you know, 10 poorly firing guns, and off they had to go to the, quote, reservation, unquote, sort of like, oh, yes, we have a reservation for you waiting on an arid, useless piece of land. So let's smoke some peace pipe, and then you guys can shuffle off with the remaining buffalo we've killed and and go to um, some whatever. Uh, But that's what happened. I mean, off they were. They were summarily kind of taken out of Chicago, and uh, that was it. Um, There's something to consider. The uh, Native Americans who first taught the Europeans and the Americans who came into the Chicago region about the benefits of the region. They, you know, they showed the settlers the agricultural potential. The Native Americans showed the settlers the important trails that um, between the early settlements. And most importantly, what they showed to these new settlers coming in or people, these travelers, they revealed the value of the Chicago portage. So... They were teachers, the Native Americans, the, uh, the teacher, they were teaching uh, these new people coming into this area how, how to navigate this area. And, of course, that just goes to show you teachers always get the short end of the stick. They should have never taught the white settler a doggone thing. They should have just, just ignored them. But, you know, they were trying to be kind, and that didn't work in their favor. Now, um, in, 19, in, I'm sorry, in 1893, a prominent member of the uh, Potawatomi Band, his name was Simon uh, Pakagon, he criticized the organizers of this. They had a great, um, sh- the Columbian Exposition happened in Chicago in 1893. And I want to mention that Michael James Bowden Jr. had attended this exposition in, in Chicago. Um, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Anyway, um, so this Simon was a little bit miffed, you know, because he was chastised because nobody asked. The fair organizers didn't include the Native American in that area uh, into the the fair, the event, or maybe even highlighted the Native American. Um, and so he felt sorely remiss. And he went to the fair organizers and he said, you know, I'm a Native American here and this land is our land. And um, you've not even mentioned us at this Columbian exposition here in Chicago. Um, I'm upset. I'm upset about this. And uh, so the what the fair organizers decided to do was give this guy a little piece of time at the podium and... uh, he was a descendant, like I said, of the Potawatomi, who had lived in the area for thousands of years. And he, he told the, the people, um, quote, it's wonderful what's here now, but I don't just see the skyscrapers. I think back to what there was there before. And what I continually hope for is we will keep our culture and traditions and continue to become stronger in being a part of the American dream. So he was a dreamer. In more ways than one. Um, and in 1833, they had the Treaty of Chicago, pushed many tribes out of Chicago area. And the same guy, Chief Simon Pakagon, and the Pakagon Band of the Potawatomi, 
were able to negotiate the right to stay. Get this. In Chicago, because they converted to Catholicism. Yep, that's it. You know, so Catholicism converts. They, they bought their way back into society. And now we see it. They were seen, I guess the Native Americans were seen as these soulful humans who were no longer pagans, who had, you know, pagans who had little understanding of the higher power of the value of our earth and universe by adopting, I would say they, it was a loophole for them, but by converting to Catholicism, they actually were able to stay in their Chicago area. I thought that was pretty cool. What a what a nice piece of clever that is, huh? <laughs> Jeez. Um, there's a lot of books and there's a lot of books and uh, history piece pieces written on Chicago and the Native American history in Chicago and that region. I absolutely loved it. Now, getting back to the uh, Columbian Exposition, why I know that uh, Michael J. Bowden uh, Jr. was there. Joey Bowden had in her belongings a box. It was a little brown, it was a brown box. It was about, I don't know, an eight and a half by nine and a half box. It was about three inches deep. And about three or four years before she went to go and live with Patty and Lloyd Hershwitzky and Patty's family, Joey brought out this box for me, and she said, I, I want you to keep this box. She said, it has these keepsakes in it from my parents and pictures of my family. And I said, okay. I said, I will honor that. I will never let anything happen to this box. So this box had in it one of these little ditties, and one of the ditties was a couple of things that belonged to Michael J. Bowden. So it was like a barber clipping kit and a toenail clipping kit because Michael James Bowden was a barber at, at a, a certain point when he lived in Wisconsin and before he moved to Chicago and uh, began a life with Ellen, a.k.a. Helen uh, Egan. Um, there was a card in there, and it was from the Chicago, or it was from the, yeah, the Chicago Exposition, the Columbian Exposition of 1893. And it showed that he, what he did was, I think he might have worked there, maybe at the exposition, or he went to the exposition because there was a restaurant that was created just during the time of this exposition. And he would go and eat there every single day. So uh, Joey had told me, Joey Bowden had told me, my mother told me that um, this was his. It was a, a piece of memory. Um, he liked, he wanted to go and see the exposition. He was kind of a showbiz man. Maybe, you know, in those days, not a carny, but I mean, this was a high level exposition in Chicago. It was incredible, the infrastructure they built for this thing. And, uh, so he left, uh, where he was living at the time to specifically go to this event. So I know he was there, but he left there at some point, and you went back to Wisconsin. So anyway, I'm going to end the podcast here. That's all I wanted to say about that. The caveat of, okay, Ellis Island is right, right? Don't believe everything you read or hear. So you just got to be careful and know that I'm being careful for you as well. And 
had to give you a little bit of a history lesson about the Native Americans in Chicago, and of course, tell you what Chicago really meant. Okay, where did it come from? So, Chicaqua, smelly onions, smelly onions or striped skunk. I'll leave it for you guys to figure out which one you prefer. And uh, that's it for today. And I will be back with another podcast in a little bit. Thanks a lot.